We have been talking about mistakes. We make mistakes. We live with our mistakes. Uh, we, we, these mistakes that we have in our lives and we live out, they create messes. We mess ourselves. Now, you can take that as far and as nasty as you want to take it, but uh, we do. We make a mess of the circumstances that we get in. Sometimes, though, life hands us messes. Well, we've seen this past week in, in Nepal is, is absolutely heart-wrenching. As we just see the, the hundreds turn to thousands and upon thousands upon thousands of people that are they're uncovering bodies. And we don't get this. I mean, we, don't, we can't imagine this. But we were just, I was just on the border in, uh, in, in India and in actually uh, Nepal back in October. Uh, it was, it's, it's amazing to think that some of the very people that we could be reaching, were going to reach, are no longer alive. And so we're, we're thankful in the midst that we, though we're not there, there are people living there that are with the organization that we support. Um, we're not just talking two or three, we're talking multiple families that are there, that were there during the earthquake that are there now serving. We actually had a family that was on this stage back in December. I'll not give their names that are moving to Kathmandu and that will be a part of that relief, recovery, developing work. So we have very close ties to what's going on. This natural disaster and God at the same time has done some sovereign work. Believe it or not, the BGR, which is the Baptist Global Response that we actually work with, support, uh, support along with your, with your givings, they were literally in Kathmandu weeks ago, not, not years ago, weeks ago before this ever happened, and they were training the personnel in country, anticipating that one day there might be a natural disaster in Kathmandu. And so God was actually putting people in place, giving them the training, and they live there. They're not going to fly in and fly out. They're not going to be there for a few days and leave. They're living there, and they're going to be with the people in Kathmandu. If you want to see how you can support the Baptist Global Response, that's on our website. You can check that out. That's a natural disaster. Natural disasters create messes, loss of lives, loss of dreams, situations, tragic situations that require a lot of recovery, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of things spent. Okay, now hang on to that. Hang on to that definition because we also have personal disasters. Call it mistakes, if you will. But the same definition applies. They create messes, loss of life, loss of a dream. Tragic situations that require a lot of recovery. I want to talk about the messes of our mistakes. And we've been talking about for weeks now this whole mistake idea. And we started a few weeks back talking about the very first mistake that we can make is whenever we misplace our priorities. You get the first domino in the wrong order. You get, you get things out of line and things just don't fall in order, okay? Things just don't go in order. Misplacing your priorities is number, number one. Number, number two is that living a life of drudgery. And really that goes back to a life that's lost without a love relationship with God. Because if you don't have that love relationship, you're going to find that faith becomes religion. Religion becomes duty, and duty is a life of drudgery. You don't want that. Brett did a great job unpacking that for us. Last week, this was a hard message for me to present to you. 
It's hard because it's a hard conversation. Because some in this room have been taking their marriage for granted. Some of this room have lost their marriage because they took it for granted. And that's a hard conversation to have. None of these are fun conversations to have when you're talking with somebody who's living in the raw emotions of their mistakes. And so please understand, I'm not in any way trying to talk down to. I'm trying to talk with. I'm a fellow pilgrim making equal number of mistakes as anybody else in this room. But how do I recover? We haven't, we've not really talked about that. How do you recover from the mess? How do you recover from the mistakes that we make in our life and that we will make? Now, there's two different kinds of paths. They are diametrically opposed. One path is, goes one direction and I think just leads to more and more mistakes and more and more of a mess. The other one is not an easy path. Don't get me wrong. In fact, it will be very hard and you'll get that here in a moment, but it is the road. It is the path that will lead to life, that will lead to hope, that will rebuild from the mistakes. Let's talk about the one that I would not advise you to take where we simply rewrite God's moral code. We, we basically live our own code, do our own thing, make our own mess. And so instead of course correcting, we just rewrite the rule book. We just develop our own game plan. We just do it our own way. You know what? I, I don't have to listen to anybody else. I can do it even though I'm sitting here watching the world collapse around me. I don't have to do what you say. This book's old and dated. You're just out of date. You, you're not with the times. That's Sunday talk. I live in Monday. You know, you can go on and on with all the rationalizations, all the little conversations in our head. And what we do when we do that is we just rewrite the moral code of God. Something that's been down through the ages, something that God divinely imprinted on stone at times and in the hearts of other people at times and in, in ink on papyrus at other times. And God gives us this truth that may be dated but not out of date. But when we chose to live by our own moral code, we are literally rewriting. We're writing our own rule book. We're making it fit us so we can have it our way. It's a very dangerous way. I feel this way. I want it this way. It makes me happy, so I want it. And we rewrite it. Beware of that path. The second one is to realign. Are you going to rewrite or are you going to realign? When you realign yourself, you realign, you realize, hey, I made a mistake. Hey, I made a bad choice. Hey, I jumped off the wagon here. Hey, I, I messed up. Hey, I created this mess. And you eat crow if you need to. You do what you need to. And you say, okay, I'm going to have to realign my plan, my game plan, my roadmap led me to this pile of mess. Now I'm going to realign my life. I'm going to find God's moral code. So here's the fourth mistake that you don't want to make is rewriting God's moral code. What we have in our day and age is a moral reconstructionism going on where we are rewriting God's moral laws to fit our lifestyle. That is going to lead us to a life of despair, a life of regret, a life of shame. We can do this on a large scale, on a, on a very large national scale. We can rewrite laws and we can redefine marriage and, and, and we can say this is what life is and this is what life it begins. And we can give people rights and we can, talk, we can talk about a lot of things and we can totally rewrite God's moral law. 
And we're going to just reconstruct it to fit our fancy, to fit our desires. That is a very destructive way to live our lives. If you've got the Bibles, look at Malachi, and we're going to see this. You're going to see this pretty clearly. When the people of Israel, now one full generation removed from exile, they've kind of forgotten what their fathers taught them about exile and what led them into exile. And we're going to come and we're going to read how this rewriting of a moral law was being lived out. So you look at chapter 2, verse 17, you say this. And by the way, I want you to notice the emotions that God has. I think one of the one of the image bearer marks that we share in the image of God is that we carry emotions, God carries emotions, all right? He has emotions and we have those same emotions. Sometimes you see God happy, sometimes you see God crying. Sometimes you see God full of joy. You, you, sometimes you see God weary. And this is a time where we see God weary. Look with me here at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord. Parents, have you ever been weary of your children? Have you ever been weary of your job? You know what that's like. You're emotionally depleted. You've spent it all. You've given it all. You've given every opportunity. You put yourself out there, but nothing is showing you what you want. You just become weary. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, again, notice every one of these, he gives an injunction, he gives an oracle, and he comes back with a question. The people come back with a question, how have we wearied him? And then we hear this, by saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. When we take evil and we make it good, we are rewriting God's moral code. When we take whatever God has said is wrong and we make it right, we make excuses for it, we make alibis for it. I'm human after all. God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy. I've got to do this to be happy. And we start rewriting and reprogramming how we're going to live. We are rewriting the moral code of God. And when we say that everyone who does evil is doing good, we're doing just that. And this is a dangerous place to be. When we think and we supersede God and we put ourselves in God's seat and we say, okay, this is the way it's going to be, then we are literally playing God. Now, if you play God and you're not God, you're going to be very disappointed when you find out you're not God. All right? But that's literally how it works. We will find out one day when the mess comes, when the tragedy comes, when, the, when, the, when, when all of our little house of cards falls down and we have a mess, then we're going to face the music. I'm not God, but yet I'm played by my rules. Maybe we need to go back and do the proper way and to realign. So what were they doing? Let's just take a quick pick picture at this. And if you look at chapter 3, because it's the continuation of this oracle, and you go down to verse 5, you see kind of a laundry list of things. This, there's not just one thing they were doing wrong. They were doing multiple things. Now, I want you to be thinking of what are some moral rewritings that we have going on in our land, but I also want you to think personally, how am I rewriting? How am I changing? God's moral code of conduct. Verse 5 says, I will draw near to you in judgment for judgment, and I will be swift witness against, here he's going to give the list, sorcerers, 
against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. As you look at this list, you might go, okay, I don't see myself anywhere in there. I don't see our land anywhere. Let's just hang on to that because I think you might see it if you look a little closer. Whenever you look at that list of things, do we not see in our day and age this problem with sexual sins? And notice what he says there, adulterers. You're acting like adulterers. We, we can't define what marriage is today. We can't even figure out uh, what a relationship looked like. I mentioned last week we have starter marriages. Listen, this week alone, I was out of town. I was in another city. And so I'll just leave it at that. You don't even, you wouldn't know the people that I'm, that I'm talking about. But I was in a weird, I've never told a story like this before. I was in a dressing room, all right, trying this shirt on. All right, so if you don't like the shirt, sorry, I can't take it back. It's a long ways away. And literally on the other side of the wall were three associates talking to each other. And they were talking about their love life. So I leaned in as I put my shirt on and I just listened. They didn't take it. They were just, they were just kind of expounding on their love life and how it was absolutely a train wreck. They're giving up on love. They're giving up on relationships. One person even talked about how they had uh, knew somebody in their family that was having a 50-year wedding anniversary. And that woman, I could just hear it in her voice, the absolute disappointment. She said, I will never see that. I have failed so bad in so many relationships, I will never see that. And my heart broke as I realized that there's a lot of people who've struggled in this area. Again, what happens is we go over here and we rewrite a moral code. We live on that moral code and then we live with the consequences of it. We'll live with the consequences. I'll come back and talk about how that fleshes out. But listen, I'm about to offend every Republican and Democrat in here, okay? Because the list that he gives us is actually, I think, something that's very pertinent to us today. All right, so if you're a Republican or a liberal or a Democrat or whatever you want to classify yourself, I'm probably about to offend you, but don't take it from me. Take it from Malachi, all right? Blame Malachi because Malachi is actually calling out the nation and the land. Another one he says, he says, who opposes the hired workers in, in his wages. Basically, they weren't paying people. They were withholding a fair and just wage. Now, we hear in our land all the time talk about minimum wage. Well, what about, what's not just a minimum wage, what's a fair wage? For that labor, that skill, what's fair? And again, I know that's subjective, but let's take it through the eyes of maybe, how would God handle this? How would God enter into the conversation of wages? Again, it may not be you, may not be your area that you're dealing with, but it may be you if you're a supervisor and you work in that area. Also in number, verse 5, he talks about oppressing the widow and the fatherless. Oppressing the widow and the fatherless. Now, I have to admit, this caught Lori and I off guard. Back in November 20th, 2009, we went on a date night and went to a movie theater, walked in, sat down, and saw a movie. So we're talking about this film festival. and all, We're kind of excited about it, uh, just movies galore all over the place. And I, I'm pretty excited about that. But as I'm thinking about going into this movie 
And we sat down with our popcorn, and all of a sudden, we were watching the movie Blindside. Anybody ever watch the movie Blindside? All right. It blindsided us. We were not ready for what God was going to reveal about us in that movie. When we realized we missed an opportunity to adopt a child back in Africa when we had that chance. I'm not going to retell that whole story. So many of y'all know about that story. But it was a great shameful moment on us. It's a shameful moment on us that we missed that opportunity. I would dare say we were busy about our own life, about making our own life, about finding our own successes and our own accomplishments. And then God led me to this verse that was a reflection in the mirror of our own soul. Jeremiah 5, 27 and 28. Probably most of you have never even read this, but God slapped me with this. They have grown powerful and rich. They have become fat and sleek. Now I was the fat one, Lori was the sleek one. They have also excelled in evil matters. What are those evil matters? They have not taken up cases. What are those cases? Such as the cases of the fatherless. Why? Why did they do that? Oh, how insensitive is that? So they might prosper. It was about them. It wasn't about the children. There's an injustice in the land. When we can go on about our day and know that there's 500 children across our state alone that don't have a home, and yet we have empty beds and empty places at our tables. There's an injustice in that. When we start writing our own moral code, we get out from underneath God's code, we're going to live with the consequences. Here's another one. Here's a hot topic. What about immigration? Do we have any issues with that today? You know, we're talking about borders. Well, notice what he says here in this passage of Scripture about immigration. Who deny justice to the foreigner. Who deny justice to the foreigner. Basically, you're a second-hand citizen or deny, uh, they thrust aside the sojourner is what it says in the ESV. We, we, when we treat foreigners as less than human, we are in trouble. I could go on and on. He's got his list there. What's our list? What's our list? What's your list? Where is it that God has given us instruction and guidance and direction, but we have rewritten it, rewritten it for ourselves? Now, what we do, I, what I do, what we do many times is I look at other people and I go, well, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. You know, I, I'm, I'm better than that. And what ends up happening is I end up self-justifying my life in some self-righteous manner by condemning your sins. I don't, I, don't problem, I don't have a problem with adultery. I have a problem with widows, but I have a problem over here. So where is it that I've rewritten the moral code of God? This is what you Halter said. He said, self-righteousness is when you think your sins aren't as bad as someone else's. That's a problem when we start rewriting the moral code of God. When we move out from under the moral code of God, here's a life principle for you. We move out from under the moral code of God. We begin to question the reliance and the justice on God. The justice of God. Think about it. What happens here whenever you think about the moral code of God and He gives us instructions on how we should live and function and operate and relate with foreigners and other people or whatever. He gives us a moral code. But He says, no, 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 no. I want to live by this moral code and I'm going to call evil good and, and I'm going to live over here. What we do is we move out from underneath God's authority, God's direction, and we're going to do it our way. And you know the second question we're going to ask God? is exactly what they ask in Malachi, verse 17. 
The second question was this. Or asking, where is the God of justice? When we move out from under the moral code of God and we begin to rewrite our own moral code, guess what? The justice of God begins to fall apart. The fairness, the the rightness of God. We start doing it our way, making up our own rules. We get in trouble. So hear, hear, hear what I'm saying. Now all I'm going to talk about as far as rewriting the moral code. Let's not rewrite. Let's realign. Let's look at our mess. What am I going to do with this mess? I want to rebuild from this. And I want to say to you today, the way that we get past the messes of our mistakes is when we stop rewriting and we start realigning. How do we do that? He mentions right here in this passage three realignments to, for our, to get out of our mistakes. Number one, experience redemption. Now, I love it that Malachi has spent the first two chapters just breaking down the problem. And he comes to chapter 3. And then he does this great big yell out, shout out, wake up call. And he says, behold, listen up, wake up. He's right there in verse 1. Don't, don't miss it. He said, behold, I send my messenger. So now God's going to start coming in with his answer. Now let me say this to you. Listen very carefully. God's redemptive work will always involve Jesus. Always. It's not behavior modification. It's not just changing the way you think. It will always involve Jesus. And the reason I say that is I'm not making that up. I'm not trying to fit, force fit something. That's exactly what Malachi does. He introduces Jesus. Even though Jesus is 400, 500 years before he comes to this earth, he still says, listen, guys, if we're going to fix the mistakes that we've made, it's going to be through this guy that I'm going to call a messenger of a new covenant. And so Malachi, which his name means messenger, we talked about that in the first week, he comes out and he says, listen, I'm going to send a messenger. I will send my messenger who scholars believe to be John the Baptist. Because what's the John the Baptist going to do? What's that messenger do? He will prepare the way before me. So John the Baptist is going to come. He's going to prepare the way and then I'm going to come. All right? Because then he goes and he says, it goes on and says this. He says, uh, whom you will suddenly, uh, whom you will suddenly come uh, to in his temple and the message, messenger of the covenant, the messenger of the covenant. Who's that? So we have the messenger of Malachi saying that there's going to be a messenger come who's going to be John the Baptist. He's going to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. Now I know this is Old Testament, but hang with me on this. Because it does pertain to our life and our redemption. And that is this, is that Jesus Christ is the one who will be the answer to the messes and the mistakes and the, and the filth and the trash that we create in our own lives. And so if he doesn't factor in, if the message and the work and the finished work of Jesus on the cross doesn't factor in, we're never going to fix the messes of our life. Jesus is that messenger. Who is Jesus to you? Now answer that question in your head. I want you to even take your paper, if you will, and write at the top, who is Jesus to me? Fill it in. For some of y'all, Jesus is a mystery. He's a mystery because you really don't know. 
In the last service, I had somebody come up to me and tell me they brought an atheist with them this morning. It's beautiful. This is a safe place to bring your atheist friends. I have no problem if we have a room. Half of you aren't believers in Jesus because I hope that by the end of the day, we'll be at least one step closer. When you see how Jesus fits into the redemption story of cleaning up the messes of our life. So is Jesus a mystery to you? Is he, is he a hero to you? Is he a friend to you? Is he a savior to you? Is he a confidant to you? Who is Jesus to you? Now, as you answer that, I doubt if any of y'all put what Malachi says next. Because Jesus is a refiner. And he does that in us. Let's, let's keep reading. If you go on and, you're, and you get down to, to verse 2, he says, but, but who can endure the day of his coming? Again, Jesus is coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So let me just break those two metaphors down. Because he uses a very common metaphors in the Old Testament. Or excuse me, the first one's very common. The uh, second one is not so common. But let's look at it. What does Jesus do in our life? How does he redeem us from our past? Okay, I've been outside the moral code of God. I've been living it my own way, doing it my own way. How does he fix this? The very first thing he does is he refines us. He refines us. He reaches into our lives and he puts us into, how can I say it? Hot situations. Melting situations. Sometimes he just allows our sin to run its course and then we end up at the bottom of the barrel and then we have to face the music. This is a common metaphor in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Zechariah 13, 9. I will put you, I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. That doesn't sound like an oxymoron, right? Why do you count trial joy and all that? Because you know that the testing of your faith here, here, here it is. Testing, trial by fire produces perseverance. Let perseverance have, have its work in you so that you may be, what? what's that last phrase? Read it out loud with me. May be mature, complete, not lacking in anything. Listen, the work of Jesus in your life is that right there, but it doesn't happen unless the testing comes, unless the refining comes, unless the melting comes. Are you willing to go through that melting? Because in the melting process, it's going to be hot. It's going to be intense. It's going to be life-changing. It's going to rearrange your life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, another one. In all that, all that you greatly rejoice, though, now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that you may be proven genuine of your faith, of the greater worth than gold. He uses this metaphor in Malachi. He uses it in, in Zechariah. He uses it in Peter. He uses it in James. What, what, what is this metaphor? This whole process of a silversmith, of a, of a goldsmith. And you know enough just from your basic knowledge to know how, how do you make gold beautiful and 
and, and, and pure and silver, beautiful and pure. It was interesting, as I did a little bit of research on it this week, that whenever they melt this gold and silver down, that silver, whenever it's in that molting stage, it gives off 20 times its own oxygen. It is literally bubbling and sizzling. There's an odor about it whenever it's going through this refining process that it's difficult to even be a part of. And you think about your life going through this refining process. God will send you. Jesus will take you through a refining process as he's cleaning you up. And the refining process, now there may be more technical methods today, but in this day, in the biblical period, how, how do you know when you have a pure piece of gold or silver? Listen to this. Whenever the refiner was able to see his reflection clearly in the metal. Whenever Jesus is the reflection of your life, then the true reforming, changing, redeeming process is taking place. Which then leads me to the second phrase. When you think about it, he redeems us. This fuller soap. What's the fuller soap? Now, how many of y'all did some laundry this week? Please tell me yes. All right, good. All right. How many of y'all enjoyed doing the laundry this week? Nobody. All right. Um, I actually, this is how boring my job can be sometimes. I actually studied how they did laundry in the 500 BC. Okay? That was about as exciting as you doing laundry. All right? I promise you. And the reason I did that is because I came to this one word, this refiner's soap that he does this fuller's soap. What is this fuller's soap? It's only used one other time in the book of Jeremiah. What is this fuller's soap and what does it mean? It's actually a lye soap that they would take it and put it into a barrel of water. They would put the dirty soiled clothes in and they would just let the clothes set there. They would take it out into the hot Middle Eastern sun and let the soap dissolve and fill in every fabric, every piece of thread of the dirty, soiled garment. It would take a while. And then they would take that garment, and like a little house in the prairie, we can all imagine that. They take it and they scrub it and they beat it and they, and they squeeze it and they scrub it and they beat it and they squeeze it. And then they hang it up and they let it dry in that same Middle Eastern sun. Listen, if God's going to take my mess that I make because I rewrote his moral laws in my life. Listen, listen, listen. It's going to take a lot of heat and a lot of scrubbing in my life. And am I willing to do that? Am I willing to allow him to speak into my life, to work into my life so much so that he is the one who purifies me? We read 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and we just blow by it, claim it as a promise, hang it on our, on our refrigerators and go on. But listen, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. The same process I speak of. The refining, the washing, the scrubbing, the beating. He wants to clean us up, but we're going to have to not be under our moral authority. We're going to have to be under His. We're going to have to stop rewriting the moral laws of God, and we're going to have to live under His and allow Him to shape us. In this whole process, I thought, okay, i got to share something personal with you. And, and I thought... Do I want to share that? I've shared this before. I want to share it again. And so if you've heard this before, please bear with me. 
It's a process that I went through. I told you last week I didn't do relationships very well for a lot, a lot of years in my life. And, and there was a time whenever I got underneath my authority and not underneath God's authority, and I was not doing relationships really well, and all of a sudden this relationship that wasn't going so well because I wasn't living under God's authority fell apart, and I was broken. And I found myself buried in the carpet of my, li- of my bedroom crying to God and saying, God, why, 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 why? And he just said, you left my moral authority. You did it your way. And you got what you got. Now, God wasn't meaning that. I knew exactly what I, I knew when I was making the wrong choices. The shame, the guilt, I, I knew I deserved every bit of that. But it was in that process that God started a process in me to redeem me. And it took me, it took me crashing, it took me burning, it, 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 it took me through a washing, it took me through a cleansing time, and I had to go through that time. If I was ever going to come out on the other side. If I was ever going to be clean and walk free again, I had to go through that process. Let's talk about number two. Reestablish your foundation. And here's, the, here, here's what happens when the world collapses out from underneath you. Where, what do you have left to stand on? Here's the beauty of this passage of Scripture. He tells us something that's unchangeable, something that we can grab a hold of and not lose sight of. Verse 6, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, when I first read that, I have to be honest with you, I kind of felt like that was kind of a rigid God. Kind of an unbending God, kind of an unsympathetic God, kind of a a God that's not flexible out there. But then I began to keep reading this whole idea of God changing. Does he change at all? And the reality is that God does change. He doesn't change, but there are things about God. God will change his mind. He did it in Jonah chapter 3 when he changed his mind and he didn't destroy the, the, the people. He, in Amos, when Amos was, was crying out to God because he was going to bring judgment on the land, it says there that God changed his mind. The Lord changed his mind about this and he didn't bring judgment on the land. So I had to balance the two. Okay, God doesn't change, but he changes his mind. And I realize this about it. It's the value of prayer. That literally as I pray humbly, submissively to God and I cry out to Him, He will hear and He will respond. And at times He may even change His direction. But He, 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 He never changes. He never compromises His character. He is solid and set. And here's the value of that. Here, listen very carefully. I can anchor my life to something and in a world that's constantly shifting and constantly moving and relationships are coming and relationships are going and jobs are here and jobs are gone and neighbors are here and neighbors are gone and friends are here and then friends betray, I got something I can bank my life on and I can go to. And even if I walked away from his moral authority, he's still there. And I can come back. He's unchanging. James 1.17 says he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. When I was in that moment, in my bedroom, in January, I can still remember it, with my face buried in the carpet, soaking up the carpet with my tears, 
I do remember, I do remember this. It was as if God was as real to me in that moment and said to me, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. God never changes. My friend, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what mess you've created. And I don't know what brokenness is in your, in your world. But there's something beautiful. God never changes. There is, there is another. There is another thing. And that's to return to the Lord. To return to the Lord. Listen, this is going to be something. It's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong journey. But, but when you look at verse, verse 7, it says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. Notice this. An entire generation, you have turned away from my ways and my laws and my morals. You've turned away from, from an entire generation. You've turned away aside from my statutes. And have, I, and, and have not kept them. Now, now, just a moment. Remember back, God was weary. And for an entire generation... They had not been walking with God. God had every reason in the world to give up on the people, right? He had every reason in the world, but that's not in his character. And he never changes. And so he makes this promise. If you return to me, what will I do? I'll return to you. We'll make this right. I don't care how big the mess is. I don't care how soiled it is. I don't care how nasty it is. I don't care how gross it is. I can fix what you have broken. You return to me, I'll return to you. We'll make this good. We'll move forward. We'll move on beyond this. But if you continue to write the moral codes and you live under your own moral codes, you're going to live with the injustices of this world. But if you'll come back to me, you return to me, I'll return to you. I love it in James when he says it like this, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. In this day, this world is calling at you, begging at you. Your emotions, feelings, thoughts, and dreams are calling you. And sometimes, listen carefully, they're calling you away. I was in Tampa this past week with a, a good friend, and we had dinner one night, and he was telling me about a, a company that he, he, um, he consults with out in the Bay Area of San Francisco. I was so intrigued by what he told me. He said, this marketing company, will only take on a new client if they can identify which of the seven deadly sins this product will appeal to. So which of this, is this a gluttonous kind of product that we can sell? If it is, then we know how to market it. If this is one that deals with sex because sex sells, then we can market it to that. But literally, they don't take on new products, new clients, unless they can identify it appealing to one of the seven deadly sins. And what am I saying about this? I'm saying the world is going to keep pulling. It's going to keep drawing. The, 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 the part of us inside of us is going to continue to be drawn towards it unless we say, stop. I've messed up enough. I've made enough mistakes. I want to get back under the moral code of God. And that happened to me on that night in January in my bedroom 
whenever I heard this song on the radio, and again, you've heard me say this before, but I can still, even those years and years and years and years and years ago, I can still remember the song. I played it over and over and over, and it's still on my iPod today, on my playlist today. And the words say this, Lord, I'm really glad you're here. I hope you feel the same when you see all my fears and how I've failed. I fall sometimes. I find it hard to walk in shifting sand. I miss the mark and find I've nowhere left to stand. I start to cry. Boy, that describes me. I start to cry. Lord, please help me. Raise my hand so you can lift me up. Hold me close. Hold me tighter. See, I realized something on that night, in that dark moment, in that refining moment, that even though I had left God, He had not left me. Even though I had walked away, He was still calling me back to Him. And He had not given up on me. For some of you in this room today, you've walked way away from God. You've made your own messes. You've tried to fix your own messes, and it just hasn't worked. I want to encourage you. Encourage you. Return to Him. Return to Jesus and allow the blood of Christ, allow the workings of Christ, allow the grace of Christ to come over and to refine and to rework you and peel away the dross so that the reflection of God is seen in you. Would you bow your heads with me? The band's going to come back. They're going to sing. But I want you to just get quiet in yourself right now. Listen carefully right now to a still, small voice inside of you. I've asked a few of my prayer partners to come around and hang out here at the front. These are people that I go to when I need prayer. These are the people that I pray with some on a very regular basis. I want to call you, if you're in that state of mind right now, in that state of your soul, where you have gotten off course, you've made your mess, and you're needing Christ to redeem you from that brokenness. To come pray with one of these. Just come and say, hey, I don't, you don't have to give them all the dirt. Just, just say, I need help. I need prayer. I need Jesus. Whatever you need to say. And then just lift it up. Let them pray for you. Father God, we thank you for this time, these moments. And I just pray that, God, you will do a great work. A refining work. Lord, help us to reestablish our foundation is on you that never changes. And God, help us to return. Return to you in a new and renewed way as you return to us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us? Come, if you will. There'll be people around to pray with you.